0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at IndivisibleRadio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag Indivisible Radio or leave us a voicemail at IndivisibleRadio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show. This is Indivisible, public radio's
2: national conversation about America in a time of change.
0: From WNYC Radio, I'm Kai Wright. Good evening. And I'm John Priddo from The Economist. It's Monday night. That means a couple of things for Indivisible. First, we're trying to give a sense of what this moment in American politics looks like to those outside the U.S. and in particular to America's allies around the world.
2: And second, on Mondays, we're asking you to join the conversation by sharing your own life experiences. We're less interested in your opinion than we are your story. But tonight, we're going to need to kind of blend those things up a bit, because the big question facing the Trump administration right now is its approach to national security. And we want to hear from Trump voters about how he's doing on this front. Earlier today, the president announced he's chosen Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster to be his next national security advisor, a choice that's gone over pretty well so far. But last week was plainly a bumpy one for the president, no matter how much he insists otherwise. This administration is running like a fine-tuned machine. It could use some more tuning. First, there was the chaos and the negative court rulings on the president's travel ban. And then Michael Flynn was caught talking with Russian officials about U.S. sanctions before Trump took office, which is potentially a federal crime. And then retired Vice Admiral Robert Howard made matters worse for the administration when he refused to take over Flynn's job, reportedly because he wasn't given full authority over his staffing. And, of course, there was that Thursday press conference, a long and combative spectacle in which the president didn't even feign concern about Flynn's freelance diplomacy. When asked whether he directed Flynn to talk to the Russians about sanctions, Trump said, Mike was doing his job. He was
3: calling countries and his counterparts. So it certainly would have been OK with me if he did it. I would have directed him to do it if I thought he wasn't doing it. I didn't direct him,
2: but I would have directed him because that's his job. Except Flynn didn't hold the job yet and Trump wasn't yet president, which is the potentially illegal part. And then the rally in the rally in Florida this weekend, where Trump seemed to announce a terrorist terrorist incident in Sweden, which was news to the Swedes. You look at what's happening last night in Sweden, Sweden.
3: Who would believe this? Sweden. They took in large numbers. They're having problems like they never thought possible.
2: Turns out he was talking about a Fox News story on Swedish immigration, which aired the previous night, not a terrorist incident. Well, today, finally, the president had some good news with Lieutenant General McMaster. But the Flint depicle and all that followed it have reinforced fears that the president of the United States is simply not in control of things, which begs the question of whether we will play a stabilizing role in the world or a massively disruptive one. So with all of that, if you voted for Donald Trump based primarily on national security, we want to hear from you tonight. What specifically did he promise as a candidate that comforted you about our national security? And how do you feel about that thing now, having watched him operate for about a month? Call us at 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255 and tell us about it. Again, Trump voters who were motivated primarily by national security issues. Do you still believe he's got a handle on our country's security? If so, which of his moves specifically have comforted you? Or have you been shaken by recent events? And to be clear, that doesn't mean you have to no longer support him. We can have a nuanced conversation here. But if you were a Trump voter and you're now worried about any of these national security developments, which ones? What's concerned you and why? Call us at 844-745-TALK. That's 844-8255. Or tweet us using the hashtag radio. And while your calls are coming in, John, related to all of this, there was quite a scene at a global security conference in Munich, Germany last week and over the weekend. Take us there. What, what was going on in Munich and why should our listeners care
0: about it? Yeah, that's right, Kai. So earlier today, I spoke to Edward Lucas, who writes for The Economist and was there in Munich. This is a meeting, the Munich Security conference that's been taking place annually for the past 50 years and normally American officials turn up and make speeches about the strength of the transatlantic alliance. This year the vice president Mike Pence and the defense secretary James Mattis sort of had a repair job to do reassuring nervous allies and according to Edward it was not entirely successful.
3: Mike Pence's speech was quite artfully crafted and he had a lot of phrases like the president has asked me to come here, the president wants me to say, the president strongly believes that. But in a way, the more he talked about the president, the more we remembered what the president is really like.
0: So the problem the vice president of the defence secretary had in Munich was that foreign allies and adversaries have noticed that this administration does not speak with one voice and that soothing words from one member of the President's administration can be quickly undone by the President himself. I think he's
3: realised that publicly dissing allies doesn't um, get him anywhere. And we've seen very friendly, effusively friendly visits from Japan, which is America's most important ally in Asia, and from Canada, which is America's most important um, neighbouring ally. And so it's clear that you know, the president can play nice when he wants to, but it's not at all clear that he's actually changed his internal convictions, which are very strongly America first. I think people fear that the president really isn't capable of changing his mind. These are deeply held convictions. It would re- require an earthquake in order to, for, for him to start seeing the world in the way that previous American presidents have seen it.
0: And In the absence of such an earthquake, one of the things that foreigners are watching closely is who has the president's ear on national security. Joining us now to talk about some of this is Karen DeYoung, who's senior national security correspondent for The Washington Post. Hi, Karen.
4: Hello. How are you?
0: So let's... I'm doing well, thanks. Let's start with the news. Um, President Trump's picked Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster as his national security advisor. What can you tell us about him?
4: Well, he's known as a a warrior scholar, uh, an intellectual. He has a... In addition to graduating from West Point, he has a doctorate in military history. He's probably best known for a book that he wrote in the late 1990s called Dereliction of Duty. And it took the question of kind of who lost Vietnam, which in the military at least has, has for a long time been answered by the thought that uh, the Politicians at the time, President Johnson and others, kind of wimped out that they they wouldn't do what the military told them was necessary to win. And what he says in this book was that um, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the heads of the various service divisions, in fact, were complicit in this. That they they did not push back. That they they uh, pretty much agreed with the politicians, and that they were just as responsible. For, for the loss of the war uh, as the politicians were um, he did lots of things after that he was in the, in the Gulf War where uh, he was known for a 2005 operation in the northwestern Iraqi town of Tal Afar where uh, he first, I think it's generally looked at as the first use of what they called the coin strategy counterinsurgency strategy where instead of the U.S. military going into places um, where they were fighting and then going back to their bases at night, actually moving in and trying to win hearts and minds and convincing people that they were there to protect them 24 hours a day. And this, of course, became the basis of the coin strategy that General Petraeus used to great effect a couple of years later. Uh, He then went on to Afghanistan, where he wrote a very well-regarded anti-corruption report. Big task force looked at not only the corruption among Afghans who are dealing with the U.S. military, but in the military itself, which everybody knew was going on, and uh, nobody really wanted to talk about that much. Most recently, he's been uh, stateside doing kind of intellectual tasks, looking forward to what what, what direction the military should go in, what kind of training they should have what kind of equipment they should have what their doctrines should be a couple of years ago he wrote a study on on ukraine that uh, looked at at the russian military operations there in eastern ukraine and in crimea and basically concluded that the russians were moving way ahead of the military in their in con- the us military in their conventional capabilities that while the united states was kind of diverted and Obsessed with, with counterterrorism and the Middle East, that in fact the Russians were building better tanks, that they were building better conventional weapons that they had tested and used to great effect in, uh, in Ukraine. And so he's a, you know, he's kind of, on the one hand, a warrior's warrior, known for being outspoken, um, but also a strategist.
0: So, Karen, there's some superficial resemblance with Mike Flynn, who, you know, the outgoing NSA, in the sense that he's another lieutenant general. He made his name in counterinsurgency, if you like, in, in Vietnam. But he's a less political figure than General Flynn, right? He's not somebody who was attached to Donald Trump in the campaign. You'd expect him to give more independent, um, perhaps less politicized advice. Is that is that fair? Well,
4: he's, he's also an active duty officer at the moment. Uh, which is different from General Flynn, who who retired uh, several years ago, and I think General Flynn was was primarily in uh, intelligence in the latter years of of his career, and had, um, as you know, been the head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, where his his uh, leadership skills of a large organization ran into problems. And I think that General McMaster has not had those kind of problems. He's very well regarded um, as somebody you can talk to, has a sense of humor. Um, I think all in all, uh, you'll get pretty good reviews of him, which was not necessarily the case with General Flynn. He had made some, I won't say enemies, but he had run into problems in terms of personnel skills, Um, that that didn't stand him in very good stead when he joined the Trump campaign and subsequently joined the administration.
2: You're listening to Indivisible. (laughs) We're talking to Karen DeYoung, senior national security correspondent for The Washington Post. And we're taking calls from Trump voters who voted primarily based on national security. James in Brooklyn, you are on the air. How are you doing, James?
5: Good. How are you?
2: I'm well. Tell us about uh, why you voted for Trump and and how you feel about it now.
5: Um, Well, you know, I voted for Trump, honestly, because I didn't really think that they were all that much different, uh, Trump or Hillary. And I I don't really feel as if Trump, Hillary, uh, or Trump at this point is very much different than Barack Obama was on national security. I feel like it's a wash, and I don't feel like Barack Obama... There's all that much different than George W. Bush on national security. So I, I believe, like, this frame uh, that's kind of, like, uh, perpetuating through the media is kind of incorrect. They're all the same to me.
2: So, James, if if that's the case, then why Trump? If they were all the same, what is it, what specifically did Trump say or, or what has he done that, that you think is better on national security if they're all the same?
5: No, no, but I, I didn't vote. I didn't vote for him because he was better on national security. I, I, I believed that they would be the same on that issue.
2: Okay, well, thank you, James. Karen, what, what do you think about that? What about this idea that that there's no difference between Trump and Hillary and and Barack Obama before for them, and Bush before them? Well, on national security, they're all the same thing. What, what do you think about
4: that? Well, I, I think that you, you could say that where George Bush and Barack Obama, come up was kind of the same in the sense that um you know Obama got got elected um in part by saying he was going to end the wars in the Middle East and that that didn't happen i mean he withdrew the troops from from Iraq and then had to send them back obviously a much smaller number but it's but it's been growing um and similarly in Afghanistan you know there's still 10,000 troops there. I think that the difference between um, Trump and Hillary Clinton is, uh, I think that that President Trump made very clear in the campaign that what he cared about was the counter-Islamic state campaign. And he said many, many times that that terrorism was the biggest problem that we faced, that um, Obama had been weak on terrorism. That everything else was a secondary uh, concern. Uh, Russia was a secondary concern, even though General Mattis, who's now his defense secretary, has testified and said many times that he considers Russia to be the the biggest threat. He just made very clear that he wasn't that concerned. He wasn't that concerned about Ukraine. Um, He was concerned about China, not so much from a military point of view, but more from an economic point of view. And so he focused on on counterterrorism that that was the biggest threat and that everything else was secondary to that priority.
2: Yeah, and I think we have a call Sam in Philly who also is concerned who 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 voted for Trump based on this. Sam in in Philly, you're on the air?
6: Yes, I am. Can you hear me?
2: We we can hear you. You, you Perfect. I I gather you voted for Trump based on your concern about terrorism. Is that correct?
6: Yes, absolutely.
2: Tell, tell us about that. What, 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 what did he specifically say that 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 comforted you and how do you feel now after a month in office uh, about that thing?
6: So I think I, he does a really good job. I think I um, voted for him because he was the only one who kind of got rid of the political correctness of not mentioning that the major conflicts of the terrorism, And the major conflicts um, of the world in general are sparked by Islamic terrorism. I'm personally a religious Jew, and, you know, I lived in Israel, and I, I, you know, lived through this terrorism, this daily terrorism on a daily basis. So it's coming um, you know, more and more to Europe. I'm also from Europe, I'm from Germany. And my parents tell me about what's going on there with the many, many refugees, that you know, so many incidences will be not even being discussed in the national and in international media. So I think by Trump calling it what it is, that it's terrorism that's growing within um particular pockets in um Islamic societies Is I think, the right way. I think Obama went the opposite of saying that let's not call it anything so that it doesn't grow bigger. And the interesting thing is it grew actually bigger over those many, many years. I'm not sure if this kind of makes sense, but that's basically the approach that I took why I voted for Trump.
2: So, Karen, thank you for that, Sam. Karen, uh on this notion, this was certainly a big part of the critique of Barack Obama, is his uh, willingness to call call it what it is, um, and that actually seems like it's kind of faded from our political conversation right now. How help us understand that? How how big a deal was it? Where do where do where does where does it where does this this issue stand in our conversation now?
4: Well, you know, uh, President Obama made a point of of not calling this Islamic extremism. He called it violent extremism and, and pointed out that it took many forms and that uh, it was a minority uh, in the in the Muslim world and that, in fact, we needed our friends in the Muslim world to combat it. Obviously, President Trump during the campaign made a big point of saying you have to call it what it is, radical Islamic extremism. Um, I'm not sure at this point that makes a whole lot of difference to the perpetrators of the violence. Um, some would argue and have argued that by by kind of branding um a religion, uh, the basis of of terrorism, that you probably make more enemies than than you would otherwise. I, I think the thing with President Trump is we just we know what he said during the campaign and we don't know for sure yet what he's gonna actually do. Um he has ordered the military and the other national security agencies to come up with a new plan uh, to fight the Islamic State, primarily in Iraq and Syria, but, but globally also. Um, I'm not sure at this point um, overseas, this is not to talk about the, the immigration issue, but I'm I'm not totally sure at this point what more is going to be done. I think there probably will be a few more troops in in Syria i think some of the the rules of engagement um will be loosened mm-hmm. But, um, but I'm not I'm not quite sure where that's going to take us.
2: Let me interrupt you there. We'll, we've got to take a short break. We're listening to Indivisible. We're talking to Karen DeYoung, senior national security correspondent for The Washington Post and taking your calls. The number is 844-745-TALK. That's 844 745 or tweet us using hashtag Indivisible Radio. Stay with us.
6: I'm David Remnick, and each week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, my colleagues and I unpack what's happening in a very complicated world. You'll hear from the New Yorker's award-winning reporters and thinkers, Jelani Cobb on race and justice, Jill Lepore on American history, Vincent Cunningham and Gia Tolentino on culture, Bill McKibben on climate change, and many more. To get the context behind events in the news, listen to the New Yorker Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts.
0: This is Indivisible. Public Radio's National Conversation About America in a Time of Change.
2: From WNYC Radio, I'm Kai Wright, and I'm John Prado from The Economist. We're talking with The Washington Post senior national security correspondent Karen DeYoung about the Trump administration's eventful past week as he tries to put together a national security and foreign policy staff. And we're taking calls from people who voted for Trump primarily based on national security. Let us know what specifically did he promise that comforted you, and how do you feel about that thing now, one month into his presidency? Call us at 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. Trump voters who are primarily concerned about national security, what did you want to see from him? How do you feel like it's gone now? 844-745-TALK. 844-745-8255 eight four four seven four five eight two five five or tweet us using the hashtag indivisible
0: so Karen, the president has filled this key post he's now has a national security advisor, but there's still plenty of vacancies in the Trump White House, and particularly in the areas of, sort of foreign policy and nas- national security and uh, you know at issue here you 've got the fact that so many Republicans who have national security and foreign policy experience declared their opposition to Donald Trump during the campaign. How do you think that's going to play out now? Does the president relent and allow some of the people who opposed him to come into the administration at at lower levels? Or does the administration end up filled with people with little experience?
4: Yeah, you've got in the actual NSC where there are about, give or take, 20 people in either direction. You've got about 200 people um, who do policy. Uh, They're divided into regional directorates, issue directorates, Um, and of those 200, give or take, about 75 or 80 are White House hires. They are people that the White House goes out and gets. Most of those jobs have been filled. Um, The rest of them are people who are detailees from other agencies, from the Defense Department, from the intelligence community, from the State Department. Those are usually jobs that rotate every two years. Um, some of those jobs aren't filled yet. I think there are several dozen of them that 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 haven't been filled. So the the the, the question is not the staff at the National Security Council. Um, I think it's more the staff in in the departments. At the State Department, you've got uh, most of the of the jobs immediately below the secretary are not filled. You don't have a deputy secretary of state. You don't have, uh, I think you you had a sort of temporary undersecretary for for um, political affairs who's now been made the acting deputy, so that job is empty again. Assistant secretaries, which are political appointees who have to be confirmed by Congress, you had most of those who were asked to leave. Um, they handle the regions of the world. Um, and different issues: non-proliferation, democracy, human rights. And similarly, in the in the Defense Department, you have a lot of vacant jobs. So you've got really several thousand jobs that uh, that are not filled. Many of them require congressional confirmation, and that's going to take a long time to do. The problem also in the in the NSC is that there aren't um, real clear lines of authority in the White House. You've got a number of people: Steve Bannon, Steve Miller, uh, Reince Priebus, who Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law, who have some role in national security policy, but it's not really clear what that role is right now. And I think one of the problems, <clears throat> excuse me, with Mike Flynn was that um, he did not really. Know kind of where he stood among these other people, and one of the things you you mentioned in your introduction that uh general harward who who was the first choice to replace Flynn, had turned the job down largely because it wasn't clear that he would be able to choose his own people underneath them. These two hundred people um do the ones that uh General Flynn hired get to stay. Some of them, which was
2: which was exactly it was a proxy fight over control, right? I mean, was it over right. whether the the political appointees are are the staff would be the the front line on security questions. Is that well? That and I, I think too,
4: yes, you had that, but you also have, you know, what is the role of the national security advisor? The national security advisor is the president's uh in house advisor on on national security policy, but is also the coordinator among all the other members of the National Security Council. And the members traditionally are the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, um, and people who who have a senior role outside of the White House in national security. And so his job was to make sure that everyone's views were represented, to make sure that they came together in a coherent Series of options for the president to make a make a decision about, and I think the combination of not being in control of national security policy in the White House, and really not having the the uh, departments, the national security departments and agencies, really up to speed and filled with people who mm-hmm. um, can advise what are really pretty inexperienced secretaries who haven't had these kind of jobs before, left them uh, a bit adrift and not getting along too well with each other.
2: Let me bring in some callers here to this, Karen, David (coughs) in Alexandria, Virginia, David, you're on the air.
7: Yes. um, So the conversation has been really interesting. I've had uh, the fortune of serving under both Lieutenant General Flynn and uh, General McMaster in Afghanistan several years ago. I mean, uh, I think they're both. I think they're both geniuses. I think they're a, an amazing choice, and I, I look forward to watching what happens because I think that John uh, McMaster is, is more than capable for this uh, for this position.
2: And how do you feel on this question about uh, the the who can who's who's calling the shots on the National Security Council? How much well, of it is political appointees versus someone like McMaster? It
7: was an interesting comment because honestly, I don't think. I I I agree with um with the speak, with the uh speaker that um that Lieutenant General Flynn ran into uh ran into problems inside the, the senior level of the White House and I think that um General McMaster is is no he's he's not going to shy away from having the same conversation so I don't know that uh I it's going to be interesting to see what happens if uh General McMaster goes away of uh General Flynn.
2: So you you feel like it, based on your time with him that he's he's going to be a rabble razzle within the white house
7: he he will he is absolutely 100% not afraid to speak his mind and make it very clear how he feels about any given topic and he has no fear expressing that as did uh, lieutenant General flint
2: thank you for that david uh Karen is so it, what's the road forward then is that you know I mean because on one hand that what David's saying really might comfort a lot of the sort of traditional national security republicans uh who have been put at put on put at on by by things coming out of the, the Trump White House is that is that
4: well i i think it's important that and and this was stated by Ryan previous it was stated by the White House spokesperson that um General McMaster will be able to choose his own staff. Uh, One of the questions that came up after General Flynn left was whether the deputy national security advisor, K.T. McFarland, would stay in her job, and the White House said, yes, she will. Um, I think that it'll be interesting to see if she does stay in that job um, when General McMaster comes along. I think he has a reputation for speaking truth to power, He's not a shrinking violet at all, but at the same time, he's not he's not known as an ideologue, in quite the way that that General Flynn had come to be known as something of an ideologue. Um, in certainly since he retired from the military, um, I think his his experience is broader. Um, it, it's interesting to me that that President Trump feels so comfortable around military officers. Um, we now have the defense secretary as a retired four-star general. The um, head of Homeland Security is a retired four-star general. The candidates, with with one exception, and that was John Bolton, uh, to to replace uh, General Flynn, were all either active duty or retired military officers. And that's something that, on the one hand, I think that that it's a little bit a product of. When they've been interviewed by President Trump, these guys give a great interview. They speak clearly. They've they've learned this their whole lives. They're the military how to give men. Briefings. They know how to talk yeah, to the guy. Right? They're really good at it. Um, and but I, I do think um, you know you saw the you saw the statement that uh, John McCain put out where he said um, General McMaster is an outstanding choice. He's well known on Capitol Hill. He's he's well respected. Um, I think the question will be, is he going to find this a job uh, where he is able to do the job the way he understands the job to be? Um, is he going to run into problems, um, in a sense, the same kind of problems that General Flynn ran into? But I think I think that General Flynn's position, having been on the campaign um, and having been very, very outspoken in political terms... Didn't really serve him very well
2: uh, in that job. Let's get some more callers in. Bessie from Chicago. Hi, Bessie. You're on the air.
8: Hey, thanks for taking my call. Hey, Sam. Hey, Karen. Um, hey. I'm glad to be on.
2: So tell us about your experience, Bessie.
8: My experience. Uh, current military and law enforcement uh, did vote for Trump. I've had some recent concerns um, with him as of late. I would say there's definitely. Um, certain things I would agree with, certain things I would disagree with. And uh, there's definitely pros and cons, the way he communicates, the way he presents himself.
2: But so do you feel you voted for him based on national security, I take I gather?
8: Yes, that'd be a primary reason.
2: And so in this in, in this month, is it what specifically has either concerned you or not concerned you?
8: A definite concern, and it was definitely a concern probably since he announced his nomination was just his um, his irrationability and just how unpredictable he can be, which can be, I guess, a pro to any enemies of the state because you can never really predict predict or really gather some sort of large sample size of data of what he may do next. But, of course, a very, very con side to that is that with a man with the his hands on the nuclear codes, this is a great amount of responsibility that you wouldn't exactly want to be on a whim on a certain, you know, what may be his mood of the day or what irrational outburst he may have, which would be a definite concern of mine.
2: Thanks for that, Bessie. Karen, what what about that that irrationality and unpredictability? How, how does that play in sort of intelligent circles?
4: Well, you saw, you saw uh, last week with, General Mattis, the Defense Secretary, and Vice President Pence uh, traveling in Europe, uh, in Brussels, um, speaking to the G20, speaking to NATO, and finally speaking to the to the uh, Munich Security Conference. This big gathering where leaders from all over Europe and the states uh, come every year, where they were kind of cleaning up, reassuring allies, um, kind of saying, "Don't you know? Pay no attention to the guy behind the curtain." um and i think that there's some reason to believe that you look at for example uh, on the on the torture question where you had trump saying a lot of things during the campaign um and then you had uh, general general mattis saying well i don't believe in torture and then trump very quickly president trump said well he's my general i'm going to go with him and i think that um this is one of the one of the problems of not having this coordination set up yet through the National Security Council. There is no system at the moment for kind of vetting ideas, um, kind of letting everybody have their say, um, regardless of what the president says in public. I think you've seen some evidence that the people around him, as many had hoped, are, you know, softening the edges, are reassuring allies, but there's no um, there's no process to do that now um, and so you've got them going out on the road and you had you had Vice President Pence today uh, talking to the EU saying we're all set for cooperation and partnership we have a steadfast and enduring relationship um, where you had President Trump on the campaign last year saying that Brussels was a hell hole he called it that uh, you know you can't you can't trust any of these people yeah. uh, indicating he didn't he didn't care about it and so i I think that once we get the the system for vetting policy and strategy in place hopefully it'll it'll be a little smoother
0: Karen listening to what John McCain and some others have been saying about Lieutenant General McMaster. It seems like there's a lot to like about him in terms of experience, temperament, and so on. But what's the potential downside to having somebody fresh out of the military as national security advisor?
4: Well, I guess it would be that, uh, you know, foreign policy and national security is much more than military power. It's diplomacy, it's economic policy. um, And if you've had someone... Looking at someone, something through the relatively narrow lens of the military, uh, then you say, um, you know, every um, I forget the metaphor about the hammer and the nail, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, everything looks Everything's like a mili- war, if like you a military problem. Yeah. But I do think that that General McMaster, because he has been, um, you know, he 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 is an an intellectual um he has he is a student of military history at least and so i think that he's someone who there's some confidence that he at least um is very aware of the of the breadth of what goes into making a national security policy so i think that's that's sort of the
2: hope here Karen we're we're getting a little short on time but because we have you I want to ask you a question that is I think confusing to a lot of people and that's this question around the leaks and the leaker's relationship to the press and as you know the Trump, the president has said the, the enemies of the state piece. setting aside that 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 phrasing which is you know troubling and triggering what, trying to parse the sort of underlying assertion that he's making there is there something in all of these years you've been covering national security is there something special about the leaking that's happening now <laughs> and it's and is it in fact something we should be concerned about you know i mean a, a too cozy relationship between intelligence and the press has not always been good see under the run-up to the iraq war and so, so how how do we think about this i you know uh
4: leaks if you want to call them leaks uh uh, are not specific to this administration. I think it's been telescoped a bit in time, um, more than you would have on, on in other administrations. Certainly, President Obama was very upset about leaks and launched more investigations and prosecuted more people than than I think all of his predecessors combined. Mm-hmm. Um, the The difference. I don't think there is a difference necessarily in. In the quantity or the quality of the leaks, there certainly is a difference in the way that President Trump has chosen to to address it, um, and to essentially blame the mil- the the news media uh, for doing our jobs. You know, we're working. That's what that's what we do, um, and I think that different people talk to reporters for all kinds of different reasons, and it's our job to filter through that and to decide what someone's motivation is and to, and to check it from every direction that we can and decide how, how legitimate it is both in, both in substance and tone. And uh, that's all we can do is continue doing our job.
2: But quickly, what's coming at you doesn't there's, there's not more of it coming out of the White House or coming out of government than, than you've seen in the past.
4: I really don't think so. Um, I th- Again, I think it's a little bit compressed in time. Well, um, I think you always find at the beginning of an administration, as they try to get organized, um, that a lot of people are unhappy because they either like the way things used to be yeah. or they expected something different. We'll we'll have Um, to
2: leave it there, Karen. I'll I'll take it as no, there's no difference. But thanks for that. (laughs) Thanks for joining us, Karen DeYoung from The Washington Post. After the break, we will take your calls about President's Day. Stay with us. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. From WNYC Radio, I'm Kai Wright.
0: And I'm John Prudhoe from The Economist.
2: It's Presidents Day today, and on Indivisible all this week, we'll be touching on how presidents shape the story of our country.
0: And tonight we want to talk about the stories we tell ourselves and others about America. So listeners, we want to hear from you. What's important to you about the founding, the ideals of this country? Call us at 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. And as your calls are coming in, Kai, I want to ask you this question. What's, you know, what's your answer to this? When you think about America, your idea of the country, you know, what, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, I have to tell you, John,
2: I'm a black American whose parents grew up unable to do things like walk through the front door of hotels and, you know, vote in some places. So quite frankly, America's story is inseparable from slavery and genocide to me. But there's also this radical idea, at least, of democracy and equality among people. And that's obviously important, too. So I guess for me, America's story is the gap between our ideals and our realities and the process of closing that gap with all of the remarkable tools we've been given, you know, our free press, the right to organize, the vote, all those tools of democracy and constantly defending them. That's that's kind of my
0: story. What about you? Well, I have a sort of insider-outsider relationship with America. I'm not a U.S. citizen, but my younger son, who is born in Washington, D.C., is. And When I lived in D.C., my other son, who's British, used to insist on listening to a rock version of the Star Spangled Banner every day at breakfast time. So he was kind of more enthusiastic about America than most Americans <laughs> actually are. But, but I, as a journalist writing about America, which my day job, the constant theme is the one you mentioned, really. This gap between the ideals, which are noble and timeless, and the reality, which can be disappointing, but you know, also sometimes uplifting to report on.
2: Well, we're also joined by Harvard historian and New York staff writer Jill Lepore. Hi, Jill. How are you? Hey,
9: I'm good. How are you?
0: Very well. Thanks for being with us. Sure. So, Jill, you've you've written a bit about American myths, the stories we tell ourselves, which may not literally be true, but that capture something essential about the country. Um, Just thinking about outside the country for a minute, for a lot of people in the West, you know, America's always seemed a bit like an elder brother who looks out for its less powerful siblings in the playground. But, but Jill, that idea, you know, of the country that stands up for a set of universal values around the world, liberty, democracy, is kind of a recent one, isn't it? I mean, Dean Rusk said that if you scratch an American, you'll find an isolationist.
9: (laughs) I don't know. I mean, it certainly goes back to the Atlantic Charter with Franklin Roosevelt and... Winston Churchill. And I don't think that was mythical, I think that was rhetorical. But in, a, in the best sense of rhetoric, I think it was kind of soaring or, oratory. So what you two, speaking about, found the upside of, of the idea of America, the aspirations, that sense of idealism, that that is really long standing. And you can trace that in American political rhetoric all the way back to the founding of the colonies.
0: So, Jill, respond to Kai for a minute. He the counter-tradition sees of the, political dissent. The... Oh, I'm sorry, we lost you for a second. Go ahead and finish your thought, Jill. You...
9: Yeah, I was just saying I, I find I find equally inspiring the tradition of political dissent. So just thinking about what Kai was saying about what, what does and does not meet the expectations when those ideals aren't realised. I mean, you think about Malcolm X saying, we didn't land on Plymouth Rock, Plymouth Rock landed on us. <laughs> And that that rhetorical move in African-American political dissent rhetoric goes all the way back. I mean, Frederick Douglass, uh, in his speech about the 4th of July in 1852, saying to a white audience, the 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice, but I must mourn. I mean, there's this incredible soaring power both to the ideals of freedom and equality that are the national truths, these truths that we hold self-evident, uh, that we have to fight for <laughs> the truth of and and then, then the people who fight for that truth in the way they speak to that i, I just find so uh, so in some ways much worthier
2: we're joined by Harvard historian and New York staff writer Jill Lapore we're talking about presidents day and the story of the country the story we tell ourselves call us and tell us about the story that you tell yourself of, about america Eight four four seven four five talk. That's eight four four seven two. I'm sorry, eight four four seven four five eight two five five. And I am going to bring in some callers here. So, Ry- Raina in Exeter, New Hampshire. Raina, how are you? You're on Hi, the air. Hi, Raina. I'm
1: well. How are you?
2: Raina is how you pronounce it. Yes. I'm sorry about that. Tell us. Tell us about your story, Raina.
1: I feel so strongly about the whole concept of religious freedom and in the founding of our country and it and also the freedom to not be religious and it just feels to me that that world is is closing in all the time and that there are only one or maybe two types of acceptable religions and that just doesn't seem like the the principle that our country was founded on. We weren't founded as a Christian nation.
2: Raina, why, why do you think that story is so important to you? Why is that the one that, that sort of stands out for you personally uh, as what's important about America?
1: Oh, I I guess because I have friends of, of so many different beliefs, and I always feel that either for myself or for them, that somebody's getting excluded when, when we cordon off what's acceptable, you know, wh- whether you know believing in Allah or not believing in God at all or believing in in Jesus as the savior. It, um, mm-hmm. whether or not any of those are acceptable to. Our government—that just to me shouldn't even be a question. Having to put your hand on a Bible to accept your office in the government seems like such a mixed message
2: to me. Well, thank you for that, Reina. I, I want to move to Alex in Minneapolis. Alex, hi, you're on the air with Indivisible.
7: Hi, I'm um, really glad to be on. I really like you guys' show. Oh, well, thank um, you. Yeah, the question is—the uh, question is, what does America mean to me? Yeah. Brexit? Yeah. To me it's always just been an imperfect project. America is imperfect at its core. We've never been perfect. And um, so for me it's just this continuous improvement that uh, that is America, trying to figure out a better way to govern, a better way to treat each other, a better way to live. Um, and it just, lately it just feels like the problems all are arising from people who just assume that they know or that their beliefs are fast and concrete and that there's no room for improvement. You know, when you decide that you don't know stuff, you're able to learn more about other people, other cultures, about your American culture, and therefore make a more perfect union.
0: Thanks, Alex. I like that idea of America as kind of continuous improvement. And, Jill, it gets, to me anyway, one of the great American ideas, which is a profound sort of optimism that, frankly, can border on the naive at times, but (laughs) which you wouldn't want to be without, I think. And yet during the campaign, Donald Trump spent a lot of time painting a bleak picture of America. It used to be a political cliche that the most optimistic candidate was the one who always won, but not this time. Did the president tap in some other more kind of pessimistic American myth?
2: Oh, Jill, I think we've lost Jill. OK, well, I think we'll the
0: ch- technology's failed us. Kyle. <laughs> How, well, maybe I should ask that question of you then. I mean, did, did you share my feeling? I have thought just watching this uh, campaign. Uh, one of the reasons I have to confess I didn't think Donald Trump would win was I had always read that the most Reagan like, sunny morning in America candidate was the one you know, most in tune with the national mood and that to go against that was somehow sort of, you know, against the country's DNA. It's really wrong.
2: It's really remarkable. And, and, you know, and the same thing could have been said in some ways of Hillary Clinton's campaign. You know, it was so focused on the dangers of Donald Trump. Nobody in the campaign was telling a story of this American optimism you're talking about, which is a really unique thing for an American presidential election. I think we have Jill back. Jill, are you with us?
10: I am, yeah. And can I jump in and say something about Raina's comment earlier, which I found Go like for so it. interesting. Yeah. I mean, one of the things, historically, that's really important to remember is that our tolerance for difference in political beliefs comes from a tolerance for difference in religious beliefs. I mean, that's where the idea of tolerance comes from. It comes from the English Civil War and the this, this centuries of fights over religion in Europe that led to this lesson that, you know what, it was actually a good thing for everybody to tolerate different religious beliefs. And that creates and makes possible a set a kind of commitment to political tolerance that's part of the founding ideology of the United States. So it is, it is heartbreaking to see that flip
2: back around yeah. can we also quickly Jill, put to you the 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 uh, question that John was asking when we lost you which is it seems like there was that the, we're, we're so invested in this narrative of optimism for America and yet Donald Trump seemed to tap into something totally different uh, with with what was felt like a pessimistic campaign what what is he tapping into there
10: yeah you can it's it's really hard to go back and read through say Inaugural addresses, which I once did, I sat and read them all, and and find an inaugural address that isn't fundamentally characterized by idealism—not necessarily by optimism, but by idealism. Right? These are the ideas that we hold dear, and here's the struggle that we're going to fight to realize those ideals. Here are our challenges. Maybe there are some dark clouds in the horizon. Maybe we're even in the middle of a storm. But there's this—you know—that's just the way the rhetoric works. So it was really jarring to hear Trump's. Speech because of the. It really so much for me wasn't the lack of optimism, it was just the, the, the utter bleakness, the, the utter absence of a sense that there is, that, that we do share a set of ideas.
2: But is, was there anything precedented in America's sort of presidential narrative for that? that for, for sort of as the president is the spokesperson for the American idea, was, is there a precedent for that? the president is, the President
10: has always been the spokesperson for I mean not you know there's no reason to give an inaugural address except that George Washington gave one after he was inaugurated. He thought it would be a good idea and spoke to Congress and sort of laid out his vision and Jackson then started speaking to the American people and now we speak to the American people immediately uh, through digital means, but what the President usually does is talk about the Constitution especially in the 19th century, presidents talked about the Constitution, but you can't go – Trump, I don't think, even mentioned the Constitution. Now, mm-hmm. that's part, partly what the speech has to do, because the oath of office is an oath to pledge, a pledge to the Constitution, that that's what the speech really is, is meant to deliver on. So it didn't deliver on that either.
2: So let's, let's get back to some callers here. Nadia in Sacramento, California. Nadia, hello, and welcome to Indivisible. You're on the air.
11: Hi, thank you. Um, so the question was, what is uh, it's about America?
2: <laughs> what is your what is your what is your idea of the American story? What does it mean to you personally?
11: Well, my family immigrated here in the eighties from Yemen, and so America to me has always been basically the land of opportunity and just a summation of all these immigrants coming together in. Trying to make a country that functions the way that everybody thinks a country should function, and it's been imperfect, and it still is, but I still have this optimism that America's the land of immigrants, the land of opportunity, and just the land of all of these ideals of what a country should be like
2: D- despite the message currently uh, of,
11: of well. It's, you know, it's hard, (laughs) but I'm, you know, that doesn't, that displays only half of the voter population of America. And even within that voter population, not everybody necessarily believes that, or they claim not to believe that. So I'm still trying to stay optimistic. I think there's just a lot of misinformation. And when you're fed information that isn't true and believe it, it's easy to just run with it. Mm -hmm.
2: Well, thank you, Nadia. Let's go to James in Silver Springs, Maryland. James, you're Uh, on the air. Welcome uh, to Indivisible. I'm a
5: person who is terribly enthused by the bequest that our founding fathers have left us. They built a constitution that works, but it was morally flawed. It said that slaves were three fifths of a person or whatever. It said slavery was the law of the land initially. But they also gave us the Declaration of Independence, which was not. Not quite consistent entirely with the Constitution, but gives us an aspirational diagram for the future. And I think we should go to the preamble of the Constitution and read it. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I look forward to the day when every talk show when every piece of legislation, when every public policy is put up against the equality, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness aspirational standards of the Declaration of Independence. And I think we could all gain immediately by talking about the Declaration every time something comes up and deciding that really important laws, like slavery, Mm for example sales equality my god life Liberty pursuit of happiness James all of those things were totally replaced under slavery if we had really uh, implemented or, or aspired to implement our Declaration of Independence we could have all agreed to get rid of the James, slaves slavery without the Civil War
2: James thank you very much for that you have brought the Declaration of Independence to this conversation in this talk show Jill what about that so uh, the declaration of independence as our founding idea is this something that presidents talk talk about a lot is it uh, how, how does this gen- actually genuinely shape our sort of presidential messages
10: well people often combine the declaration of independence and the constitution as if they're a single <laughs> document and that's the legacy of what, what historians call the constitutionalization of the Declaration of Independence. That's what Abraham Lincoln accomplishes. It's Lincoln who says, okay, the Constitution condones slavery, uh, exactly as James was saying, but the Declaration of Independence can be used to undo that. It's a pledge to the future. It's a promise that we can use to undo what the Constitution has done. And so there's this incredible turn in the meaning of the Declaration of Independence during the Civil War. and it. It does have that kind of founding creed nature to it, but it's nevertheless controversial and is fought over and is fought over by each generation. When I think about... Uh, the American Bicentennial in the 1970s, celebrating the 200th anniversary of the American Revolution. I remember in in Boston in 1773, the 200th anniversary of the dumping of the tea, the Boston Tea Party. There was a there was a ship made in Europe and sort of a fake 18th century ship that was sailed across the ocean, and it was going to be this big deal when it reached Boston. There was going to be a reenactment of the Tea Party, and a lot of people were really excited about that and had this kind of storybook version of the Tea Party and went to Boston only to find that the whole thing was mobbed with protesters. There was a huge Vietnam uh, veterans against the war protest that day, that people who saw themselves, that these Vietnam veterans who were protesting the war, they were the true inheritors of the American revolutionary tradition. There was an American Indian movement protest. There were all these people in Nixon masks (laughs) running around. (laughs) And the whole thing kind of came unraveled. And I think that for uh, a lot of people who feel maybe betrayed by the current, the, the sort of previous regime uh, of the, you know, the reign of Obama, but there's some sense of the unraveling of a consensus around the American past that really fell apart in the 1970s. Oh.
2: Well, Jill, we're going to have to wrap up the conversation there. That's Jill Lepore, a staff writer from the from the New Yorker, a Harvard historian, and the author of many books. Thanks for joining us, Jill. Thanks. You've been listening to Indivisible. This is public radio's national conversation airing four nights a week for the first hundred days of the new administration. Tomorrow on Indivisible, excuse me, tomorrow on Indivisible, President's Week continues as presidential historian Douglas Brinkley and political commentator Cokie Roberts join WNYC host Brian Lehrer for a history lesson on how the definition of democracy has evolved through 45 American presidents. I'm Kai Wright. And I'm John Prado. Thanks for listening and talk to you next week.
5: If you like the Indivisible podcast, rate and review it and tell your friends. And thanks for listening.